Our gospel reading today is taken from Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 5, reading uh, verse 17 to 26. Jesus says this, he says, do not come, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, that person will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and whoever teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good afternoon. The sermon text today is, uh, is not one that we've read yet. It's Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 17. You can turn there if you want, uh, but it's, Thou shalt not commit murder. And as we continue uh, through the Ten Commandments, we find today uh, that it marks the beginning of what I call the uh, one-liners, the, those four commands of the second table that each begin, Thou shalt not, and they complete their instruction within that single sentence. And it would seem like thou shalt not kill should be a pretty simple command to follow. If any of you have murdered, I'm not aware of it, but maybe you want to murder someone. Well, Pastor John just read what Jesus had to say about that. So it seems like I could just stand here and simply say, don't kill anybody, don't even think about it, amen, and be done. But there are a few things that we should consider about why we shouldn't kill anybody or, or even think about it. And as with each of the commandments, we see the command, and we also see the not-so-between-the-lines implied command. You see, there's the negative, don't do this thing, and then there's the positive, do this thing instead. And what I mean by that, for example, uh, during week three, Pastor John examined the command, uh, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain. But he also pointed out the positive exhortation of the third law is that we are to honor the name of the Lord. 
Don't abuse the name, honor the name. And so it is today, thou shalt not kill, obviously, but just as importantly, we need to consider the positive exhortation. Thou shalt give life. And to that end, my hopefully brief examination of the sixth commandment will be in two parts. Part one, death, and part two, life. So today's sermon is literally a matter of life and death. Take note that while I will, um, kind of as a disclaimer, I want to uh, say that I will mention several means or ways of death, um, but at no point will I specifically reference war or any sort of modern capital pu- punishment. The Bible has plenty to say on both of those issues, and they are governmental in nature, and as such, they are matters of the state, meaning these two things are largely political issues, and in, uh, especially in our culture today, and I will not be talking politics today from the pulpit. Today we will deal with the individual. Perhaps the governmental role in our collective lives can be addressed another day, but it will not be addressed today. So with that said, pray with me before we begin. Heavenly Father, who breathes life into creation, who does not desire the death of the one who sins, but that we repent and have life, continue as we go through this series, O Lord, to hide your law on our hearts, to write it, that we might not sin against you. Make us a people of peace and of love and of life. May we never bring death. May we never even think about it. Set our hearts toward you, the giver of life. And now, O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts today be acceptable and pleasing in your sight our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Death. Death. I could easily fill our time, I think, probably by just referencing uh, many or all, perhaps, of the vast instances in the Old and New Testaments of murder or killing, uh, people dying by the hand of another in an unjust way. But for our purposes, I will examine... What Pastor John read, Matthew 5, Luke 6, and a bit of Genesis and James. So we're going to be around in a couple of different places. And we're going to start in Genesis 3 and 4, right at the beginning. And when we read of Adam's fall and his ejection from the Garden of Eden, we see that the consequence of that infraction is death. If you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. Well, while that death is primarily a spiritual one, But through the fall, we see that physical death comes to our bodies, and the worst of deaths coming from our own hands, acting out our now twisted heart's desire. And so if you've ever been asked, was the fall really so terrible a thing? I mean, surely sin is learned, is it not? We start out good, right? But it's the the generation before us influencing the next ones to do the wrong thing. Yeah, that's how it is. Well, you can answer, I think, by pointing out that in a single generation, from Adam to his firstborn Cain, the variety of sin stretches from one pole to the other, from the shameful, allow me, fruitless curiosity about something forbidden in the garden, which was ultimately just not trusting the Lord, to cold-blooded murder of one's own brother. 
So you see, the fall was not a gradual thing. It was an instant. And in an instant, sin begins its reign, and the darkest motives of our hearts are made reality in the way that we often treat each other. And so it is necessary, especially in light of the news this week, that we be told, do not kill each other. It should seem simple. I would hope, I would think that as I preach in a church of Christians, I should be able to say, well, none of us are killing, so let's move on to the applicable stuff. But the law does its job as it, as it always does. And whether we're explicitly guilty of actual uh, ho- homicide or not, it does its job and our heart is revealed. So if you've ever, um, I'll say it this way, if you've ever stood in front of a funhouse mirror, you know its twistedness is revealed in our reflection. We look at ourselves and we are straight. And if you touch the funhouse mirror, you can see it's bent. The funhouse mirror is broken. But the perfect mirror of the law reveals the way we are warped. And in this instance, it's not the mirror that is broken when we see our gangly reflection. It is ourselves being perfectly reflected who are broken. But why this command? In the reflection of the mirror, we see ourselves as we really are. But what makes killing wrong? Why are we instructed, thou shalt not, thou shalt not kill each other? Why are we instructed to not do harm to, to another per- person? Why is harm wrong? And the short answer, of course, is God said so. But why has God said so? And I admit that the, the why God is not always a helpful question But in this instance, the why, we do not harm, is made very plain to us. It's a very helpful question indeed. And so if we go forward a bit from uh, Genesis 3 and 4 to Genesis 9, God says to Noah, he says, Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man his blood shall be shed. For God has made man in his own image. And so God says to Noah, if you, if, if you or someone around you causes a homicidal death, then they are worthy of death because you've killed an image of God himself. Genesis 1, let us make man in our image. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. One commentator put it this way, we are the icons of God. Creatures made with a unique capacity to mirror and reflect the very character of God. God is love, so we love. God is just, so we seek justice. God creates ex nihilo out of nothing, but we are able to fashion new things with with what he's given us. We are the icons of God. He has created us, and he looked at us, and he called us good. Human life, or any life for that matter, I'll always argue, is not inherently good. It does not have inherent value. But it has been declared good, which is so much bigger a thing. Without the Creator's declaration, life and death would be arbitrary and have no meaning. But God has spoken, and so life has value. And therefore, we have no right to look at a thing created by God and say it's not good. 
Its behavior may not be good. Perhaps its grammar is not good. But its value is in that declaration of God himself. This I have made, and this is good. This is why murder is wrong, and suicide is wrong. Euthanasia is wrong. Abortion is wrong. The created person, however tiny or however old, is still made in the image of God. And it belongs to God. And it is God who will do as he pleases. God alone has that prerogative. Do no harm. Do not destroy the very image of God. Should be easy enough. But you can ask anybody, including Christians, about the destruction of humans bearing God's image, and you'll get all sorts of hemming and hawing and rationalizations of personal choice as though God has relinquished his authority to the creature. Trust me, he has not. But still, you know, hey, I'm not into murdering. You're probably not into murdering, you know, maybe. So hopefully we won't murder. And for us, perhaps today, on its face, the command seems pretty easy to obey. And if we uh, were good little Pharisees, like we often are, we would probably feel pretty good about our behavior towards those around us. Nobody was killed by my hands this week, so yeah, good week. But there's two things we should consider. Number one, the first one we've examined, the obvious statement of the law, do not murder But number two, what we read in Matthew 5, how Christ shows how the law reveals our hearts. Do not murder. Do not even think about it. In Matthew 5, we read those petrifying words, uh, or John read them to us. The convicting accusation against us all. You have heard it said, do not kill. Anyone who kills will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother, will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says, you fool, or that is, anyone who insults the image of God, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Well, why is the one who casts an insult in danger? Well, we know that because from out of the heart the mouth speaks, or more properly, out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Our mouth reveals our heart. And when we say things we don't mean, we actually, I fear, reveal most honestly our darkest feelings on whatever the matter was. John writes in uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, along the same lines. And he says, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. John says, do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and killed his own brother. And Calvin says that the law was given for the the government of the heart. And so Christ and John have made that plain. And hate and anger and scorn, these exist internally long before they are exampled by our sneers or our insults, our harm, and our actions which kill. And yet, still the calling is higher. You see, it is not enough for us to only refrain from harm and from hate. In Luke 6, he says, 
love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless the ones who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the right side of your face, offer the left also. This is the beginning of a string of instruction from Christ to his followers, or at least those who were there to hear it. And it's one of uh, several passages in the Bible that we often explain away in order to trade it out for something more convenient, kind of like pray without ceasing. Uh, not really all the time. I mean, I got to eat, right? That doesn't mean like pray without, you know, ceasing. Or always be ready with an answer for the hope that is in you. Always be ready. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm ready, but I was really tired and I didn't want to talk about like faith and stuff. I mean, I thought that that guy was going to argue with me. And so I just, uh. for most of us, on our very best days, our very best days, they sound, the, the command, love your enemies, sounds something like this, or looks like this. Tolerate your enemies. Tolerate. Tolerance is the world's mantra. And speaking fairly, I think it, I can say that they don't do that very well. But tolerance is nothing. Tolerance is nothing. Tolerance is a world of gray when the Bible speaks in ones and zeros, blacks and whites and right and wrong. Tolerance is worthless when Scripture calls us to something that is so much higher. Tolerance is what we have for that personality that rubs us the wrong way or that guy who laughs at his own jokes. Tolerance is what we have for our sin when we've convinced ourselves that it isn't hurting us or anybody else. But do you think if God could tolerate sin, he would have sent his son to the cross? I think not. Intolerance is not the gospel, and it's not love. At its best, it's apathy. And honestly, most of us don't even tolerate very well. And yet, tolerance doesn't scratch the surface of our calling. If the command is thou shalt not kill, our calling is thou shalt give life. But how do we give life? And of course, there's possibly several worthy answers to this question. But ultimately, it breaks down into two obvious categories, words and action. And we'll start with action. Not killing will keep us out of jail, but not killing is not the same as loving. Jesus says, do good to those around us. Help them. Give rides. Buy meals. Give a genuine smile. But wait, did you see what I just did there? Jesus doesn't say to merely do good to those around us. In fact, he says, if you do good to those who do good to you, what is that? Anybody can do that. Do good to those who hate you. Help them who hate you. Buy a meal for the one who hates you. Give a genuine smile and show love to them that hate you. And so often we fall so short of that. But whenever we realize that, we can start to get somewhere. And we can start to love like we're called to love. And it will really start to look very radical. But what of our words? We'll notice that 
Christ did not say there in Luke, bless your friends. I mean, you should bless your friends. But Christ implores us, bless those who curse you. Bless them. To the one who speaks ill of you, speak well of them. Mention their positive qualities. Don't get sucked into a bashing fest. Don't curse them back and get your friends to join in and support you. It's so easy to do. If you can only manage to love those who love you, what is that? Everybody loves the people who love them. Love your enemies with your words. James said that our words can be a deadly poison. With our tongues, we bless our Lord and Father, and then we curse people, the people who are made in his image. And there's James, once again, bringing it right back to creation. We don't murder those made in the image of God, and we don't curse those made in the image of God. There are two different commands, but they're given for the same reason. So we speak words of life. We must not wait for others to be good to us first. We must begin now. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, if you're offering your gift at the altar, these were the temple times, and you remember that someone has something against you, an offense, you've done something, and they're angry, you can know it. Go make it right first. Then come back. Come to terms with your accuser, Jesus says, and do it quickly. Next week is communion, and I hope that you all return. So this week, the call is to examine yourself and to see if there be something between you and someone else. If so, do your part to make it right. Love them that hate you and do good to those who hurt you. And if you harbor hate or anger or bitterness, go to the Lord, who he, he himself, who is quick to forgive. And then follow his example and forgive. And if you find yourself speaking words of death and cursing, even the least of those around you, James says, this ought not be how it is. Repent and make it right. Ultimately, the command, thou shalt not commit murder, is the command to love and to give life. Well, John asked me to keep it short because of our meeting tonight. So I'm going to keep it short. And I want to close um, with a few simple words of exhortation from uh, J.C. Ryle, my son's namesake. Ryle says, practice love diligently. It is one of those graces above all which grow by constant exercise. Strive more and more to carry it into every little detail of daily life. Watch over your own tongue and temper throughout every hour of the day, and especially in your dealings with children and with spouse. Remember that character of the excellent woman from Proverbs 31, and her tongue is the law of kindness. And remember well the words of Paul, let all your things be done with love. Love should be seen in the little things, 
as well as in the great ones. And remember not least, Ryle says, the words of Peter, have fervent love among yourselves, not a love which just keeps a light, but a burning, shining fire which all around can see. It may cost pains and trouble to keep these things in mind, and there may be little encouragement from the example of others, but persevere. Love like this brings its own reward. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.